feel like these are some tough stories. In fact, one of you came up to me several weeks ago and were really honest, and it, it was really good for me to hear this. Uh, she said, I am disturbed by the story of Hagar. And we started talking about the second part of Hagar's story and then uh, how it's referenced in Galatians. And I felt like God was really there in that moment reminding me how very disturbing this story could be. It can bring up a lot of emotion and confusion in us. Um, we could have an unsettled feeling toward the Bible. Even more so, we could have an unsettled feeling toward God. And so what do we do when that comes up? Because if if I'm just powering through these stories, if I'm just reading quickly, if I'm just doing a cursory reading of this, here's what I could see in these two chapters. I could see God condoning bullying. I could see God agreeing that a child could be a mistake. And possibly I could even see um, in chapter 22 a God who's okay or even asking for child sacrifice. I'm not okay with that. So what do, what do we do? Well, we talk about it. We ask really good questions, and we see what we can learn about God. And we're going to see how do these stories fit into the bigger story of the Bible. So when I um, come up to tough scriptures, one of the things that helps me is to look for a theme that runs through all of the Bible. Okay, so I look for a biblical theology theme and what I want you guys to listen for this morning is the theme of offspring, okay? Listen for that word or for that idea and let it lead you through these tough scriptures, offspring. Okay, but as we begin, we actually have a moment of levity and joy. So I want us to take it while we can because the story starts and Sarah finds a new laugh, didn't she? See, earlier we heard her laughing, and we agreed that her laugh then was kind of dark, right? And I think we all know what that laugh means in our own hearts. You know, guys, that, that chuckle that we do that's kind of sarcastic, it's kind of got a bite to it, an edge to it. Maybe it's accompanied with an eye roll, but really it comes from a place of bitterness. It comes from a place of unbelief, a place of hardening. That's where Sarah was, and then her story opens this week where we get to see that God, who is rich in mercy, has given her a new laugh, and we cling on to that. We believe that he can do the same for us. We believe that we can have this laughter that comes, like erupts from our soul, where there used to be pain, there's now healing, where there used to be emptiness, there is now life. We have seen Sarah go from barren and abandoned to full and known. She gives birth to Isaac, and this is the climax of Abraham's story. Isaac is born, the long-awaited climax of Abraham's story. So let's just pause for a second. Think about when you had to wait for a long time for something, right? Think about when you had to pray for something for a long time. I mean, I don't know that I ever prayed for this, but I actually was remembering the first thing that I wanted, like, for over a long course of time was a boom box. Do you guys remember boom boxes. Some of you don't, and that's sad. You're so young. So I remember when I finally got a boom box for Christmas. Guys, this thing was this big. I mean, it was just huge. had a big old handle, and I never did like the, was it Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or whatever, but, uh, but I remember like getting that long-awaited thing that I wanted. But then the reality is there's, there's decisions you have to make afterwards. 
So the decision I remember having is, am I going to put in my good Christian Michael W. Smith Change Your World cassette, or am I going to put in Boys to Men, right? I had a decision to make. Well, doesn't that continue as we get older? The things that we wait for, maybe it's a husband. You wait and you pray and you wait and you pray for a good husband, and then you get one, and then I'm like, oh, my word, what do you do with a husband, right? <laughs> How do you become a kind wife to a husband? Maybe for you, it's a job. For me, I knew I wanted to be a nurse from the time I was 14 on. And so it was this long time of waiting to become a nurse. And then I finally became a nurse. And what does it come with? A really steep learning curve and night shifts. Right? And I think that that's part of what we see here. Here's what they've been waiting for. But just like in our life, we don't just exit stage right when God gives us what we want. But life actually continues. The ebb and flow of good and bad. The joy of Isaac's birth starts to dissolve as family drama appears in this story. So when Hagar's story picks up, we believe that Isaac is probably a young toddler because he is being weaned. And so Ishmael is probably around 13, so a young teenager. And we see Sarah, who is maybe fittingly named princess. Maybe she's channeling her old name of princess. She sees her child a promise being mocked by Ishmael, and it rubs her the wrong way. Do you wonder why? I mean, this text gives us so many opportunities to pause and to ask good questions. So we shouldn't just power through that. Oh, yep, Sarah's upset. No, stop, guys. Why? Why would she be so upset? It made me wonder, was there, like, chronic insecurity that came from her infertility? It made me wonder, is Sarah proud? Is she arrogant? Or is there another option? Could it be that Sarah was perceptive? Could, was it that when she saw Ishmael mocking Isaac, did it like rake against her soul that the child of her own manipulation and her own efforts was in, insulting or disrespecting the beauty of God's provision? No matter the reason, we see, er, we see Sarah go to Abraham with an idea, just like we saw her do in chapter 16. But here there is a difference, and it's really a compelling difference. In chapter 16, it says that Sarah goes to Abraham, and Abraham listens to who? To Sarah. He listened to the voice of his wife. Here we see Sarah goes to Abraham. She's got an idea, but there's a difference. Abraham listens to the voice of God. Here's what God says. He says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. So we're kind of leaning forward in our seats now. We should be kind of hinging on this moment. What is God going to do? As the reader, we're looking at a situation that doesn't really have a clear solution. And so we should sit in that tension. What is God going to do? He says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God tells Abraham, do what Sarah says. Send Hagar away. Send her away with her son. Cast them away. What he says to Abraham, if we're being honest, we should say that is disturbing. That is confusing. So ladies, what do we do when the Bible presents something that doesn't make sense to us? What do we do with what, what we read in the Bible maybe even contradicts what we believe to be true about God or what we think that the whole story of the Bible is really about? What do we do in that moment? 
Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, we keep reading, okay? We don't let our discomfort and our squirminess make us shut the Bible. No, we keep it open. We stay close to the text, and we keep reading and asking good questions of the text, okay? Because the the shock that maybe you're feeling, the discomfort that you're feeling, it could be that that is exactly what the author wanted you to feel in this moment. So you stay right there. So let's ask questions. Why would God allow this? Why would God agree with this? Or the question that helped me was, I said, well, what would have happened if it would have played out differently? So what would have happened if Ishmael actually stayed in the camp? So actually go there with me. If Ishmael stays and is raised where Isaac is, they would both be, you know, become men. They would take wives. They would start building families. And so maybe we would look out at Abraham's camp and we would see pockets of Ishmael's family and then pockets of Isaac's family. But as time passed, there's, become, there's like a blending of this and it becomes ambiguous. And you would look out at the people of God and you would say, well, wait, who is, who's of the children of promise? Who's of man's effort? And it just becomes this mess. I mean, who would be seen as the father of this nation? Who would get the glory for this nation? Who exactly is the author of this story? And it takes us back to right away, page two of our study, guys. Do you remember that repeated phrase over and over again? It was, I will, I will, I will. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great name. I will bless those who bless you. So guys, again, what are we doing this morning? We're taking difficult texts and we're learning how to study them in a way that teaches us good truths about God. So another thing that helps me when I'm just stuck and I'm confused as I, I try and pop up into like a, a biblical theology view, okay? And this is a bridge for this. So we're trying to resolve this tension that God is doing something that does not make sense to us. Okay, so let me remind you about the big picture. You guys know this. God is creating a people for himself. They are a covenant people. They are people who will bear his image, who will rule for him, who will look like him. God's people must be built on faith alone. They must be a righteous people as God's kingdom grows on earth. Okay, we have a big picture. We have a big God. We have this big story being penned, and it's about the kingdom. This kingdom, this family, it's not always going to make sense to the watching world. It's going to feel backwards. It's going to feel upside down. It's going to be driven not by what is seen, but by what is unseen. And it is not going to run on the timetable set by man. Okay, let's keep tethering this story to the big story of the Bible. Do you guys remember what we read in Genesis 3.15 last fall? And I think it was referenced in the teaching last week. Okay, Genesis 3.15 says, this is God talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, the context of this, guys, this is after man has rebelled. But it is before the consequences have been laid out for Adam and Eve. Catch that? This verse is a verse of promise. This is a verse of hope. This verse tells us that the story is going to end well. So we have rebellion. We'll go this way. We have rebellion and sin. And then before the consequences are laid out, we have, boom, hope, rescue, promise, comfort. 
Genesis 3, does that not show us the gospel? That while we were rebellious, we were met with grace and hope and mercy. God's goodness coming. Yes, there's going to be consequences for that. But first, there will be hope. Okay, after this, so we hear a son of Eve or an offspring of Eve, the seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head and thus bring victory and life where sin brought death and loss. And so that's where the Old Testament then takes off. It takes off with each each page of the Old Testament saying, who's this offspring going to be? Who is this man, this rescuer going to be? Which son of man is going to bring the solution that sin the, to the problem of sin? First stop, is it Cain? Nope. Couldn't be the next offspring of Eve. That's Cain. He's a murderer. And so the pages keep turning and we ask, oh, 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 it's Noah, right? As Noah's story begins, we see him being kind of a man of rescue and victory. But then what happens? He gets off the ark. We find him in a garden. And there he falls to sin as well. So I guess it can't be Noah. So time keeps passing, pages keep turning, and we keep looking for a righteous, righteous offspring. This offspring that will bring victory to the people of God. So God begins again, you could say, with Abraham. Where our study began this semester, we see Abraham as kind of the next Adam, as maybe the better Adam. We see him as a man of faith, although he's far from perfect. We see a promise of offspring. And so that cues us that this is the same story. We have picked up that same storyline. Okay, There's little differences. Like with Adam and Eve, we saw commands from God. But now, as Abraham's story takes off, we see promises of God. As if God is saying, you know what? I'm going to carry the weight of this. It is not on you anymore. I will carry the covenant covenant for you. So here God is with this, this story of kingdom coming through a family, family coming through a child, that child being a child of promise. Faith, not flesh, is what will propel the story and this family forward. So there we go. There's our biblical theology. Do you feel better about our story now? No, not completely, right? I don't, because what I still see in chapter 21 is a woman who is being exiled from her home, a child who is still being treated like he's a mistake. I see Hagar bearing the consequences of Abraham and Sarah's sin. What do we do? We still do not have a resolution to the problem of the story. So what do we do? We keep asking questions. My next question What's this big God, this heavenly God, going to do next? I'm going to start reading in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, the boy whose name means God hears. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. 
Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow, like Katniss in Hunger Games. <laughs> he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Our question, what is this big God of this big story going to do next? He's going to come close. Who's he going to come close to? To a woman, to an exile, to a slave to the hurting person, to the minor character, you could say. And he comes so close, it's almost like he's whispering, fear not, Hagar. Did you guys catch that he used her name? What has she been called almost every other time? Slave woman, slave woman, slave woman. Objectified by Sarah over and over again. And here God calls her by the name and says, fear not. And he reminds her of the promises of a decade earlier. He's not just saying, well, she better remember that. I delivered him once. No, he comes and he reminds her again of his promises. But most importantly, why this story turns out good is because God reminds Hagar of who he is. He comes again and he says, I am El Roy, the God who sees you. I am the God who hears you when nobody else does. I hear you and I see you. And furthermore, there's this beautiful little nod to water, isn't there? Do you remember where God found her in chapter 16? He found her on her runaway path to Egypt. He found her at a well, and he proved himself to be the God of refreshment. And now here he is again, and he opens her eyes, and she sees a spring of water. What a beautiful contrast to the empty water skin that Abraham had given her. And does that not just get you excited when you think about hundreds and hundreds of years later when Jesus would meet a marginalized woman at a well in Samaria and remind her that he is the God of eternal refreshment. God hears Hagar's cry. He saves her and he saves her offspring, but he sends them away. He sends Hagar and the offspring of self-reliance, the offspring of manipulation, the offspring of impatience away. He casts them away from Abraham's family. Ladies, we do not hear God defending himself here. We don't see him scrambling around apologizing to her for what he is going to do. We see that the God of covenant is not freaking out, making a plan for his people or apologizing to Hagar. And maybe this is time for us to remember or to consider that God's ways do not always make sense from our perspective. I know this is true for many of you. I know that this is, feels very true for me in certain times of my life. I know that if we were honest in this room, many of us would say, you know, I'm not considering him faithful who has promised. Maybe you are on years and years of unmet expectations. You are knee deep in disappointment and you feel like your faith is getting really, really thin and really, really frail. You are barren. You are empty. You feel alone. You feel unseen. You feel used by others, neglected, tired. Ladies, what is it for you? 
Or maybe the question is, who is it for you? What is that, who is that person or who is that, what is that thing in your life that makes you feel like you can relate with Hagar and Ishmael here? Can I gently remind you and remind myself, please hear me say gently, we do not see the bigger picture. We see life from a limited perspective, perspective as if we are seeing life as a, in a room dimly lit. Could this chapter remind us that there is a much bigger story being told, more than what our eyes can see, and, and to simplify it, that story is about faith. So ladies, if that's you, cry out to God. Cry out to God like Hagar did. Or maybe obey like Abraham did. Even if all you can see is two bad options that come from the consequences of your sin. Cry out to God, but here's what we need to hear. We need to cry out to him, not with our ideas, not with our backup plans, but cry out for faith. Cry out for faith, for comfort, for strength. I do not want God to hear me say, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. I want him to hear me say, here's my faith. See, it's like a half of a mustard seed. Would you take it and would you grow it? Would God hear us cry out to him? Would we see the difference in the two different cries as they come from us? Not, here's Ishmael. Here's this really great idea I have of how this should play out. But instead, here's my unbelief. Would you help it, God? Faith in God's promises, guys. I know it sounds simple, but I think it's what we need to hear. Faith in God's promises will allow us to sit tight and watch as his story unfolds. Because there's even more instruction, even more application for us as we look at this story um, from a, a bigger view. We were taken to Galatians 4, where Paul actually talks about these two women he uses them like in an allegorical way. I understand like it, this was hard to understand. I think just hopping down in Galatians 4 was brutal. <laughs> Galatians is tough to understand. And so to try and just understand it was a challenge. Don't hate the study because of that. We can, we can figure this out. So Sarah is talked about as the, uh, the woman of faith and her children, children of faith. Hagar then, the children of Hagar would be the children of law. Okay, guys, this is actually where it gets on the ground for us because it goes from telling us about who God is to speaking to us about our identity, okay? This truth informs our identity. You are a child of God. You are a child of promise. Specifically, you are a child of Sarah. You are a child of faith. Why can I say that? Because your salvation, not your idea, <laughs> Your salvation, not the product of you manipulating God with your good church attendance or your good behavior, okay? You are in Christ because of faith, not because of good works, okay? You are a child of faith and promise because the promise maker showed himself to be the promise keeper, just like in chapter 21, okay? Our salvation was created out of nothing, so how then do we live? If we were saved by faith, how then do we live? We live by faith. 
It's simple, but not easy. Simple, not easy. This week, I had to live this out. That's the bummer about when I teach instead of watch a video is that God makes me live it out the week beforehand. And it kind of caught me by surprise, and maybe you guys all made this connection yourself, but I did not. So, you know, right away, I think in week one, I drew out the question that Sarah asked. She asks it rhetorically, I think. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I felt invited to make that not rhetorical in my life. What is it that I think is too hard for the Lord? We just made cute little cards, and I didn't actually write down the answer. And then it showed up in our homework, I think, last week. And I had to write down my answer. And honestly, as I wrote down my answer, I was bummed because I'm like, dang, that's the exact same thing I've been working on for nine months. Same topic. And for me, it was actually, it was a little bit tricky to, to catch in my life because it wasn't just specifically about me, but it was about somebody that I love. And it's about an area of unbelief that I have for this person. And therefore, <laughs> I am tempted to say, it's too hard for the Lord. Well, then I'm working on this text and I type out the question for you guys, for you guys to figure out who is your Ishmael, ladies? Who's your Ishmael? What is your Ishmael? What is the thing, what is the product of you trying to help God? What is the product, the thing that we can see from you giving an idea to God? And then those two things connected for me. Guys, when I identify an area of doubt or unbelief in my life, when I answer, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I say, well, yes, God, this. Boom, 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 boom. If I do not confess that, if I do not see the unbelief in that, if I do not share that with you guys and ask you to pray with me that I would be done with that unbelief, it will grow and become an Ishmael. Think about it for Sarah. What was too hard for her? She could not believe that an offspring would actually come from her. And so eventually, as time wore down her faith, she acted on that unbelief. I will do the same thing. If I do not pull out, if I do not let the Holy Spirit pull out my unbelief, even if it's mixed with good motives, then I will eventually make a mess. I will act on it. I will have something that comes from Rebecca's efforts of trying to help God. The key here, the application here, at least for me, is confession and repentance. I cannot just let, even if it's just a little corner of unbelief, I can't let it sit there. I will make a huge mess, and I will hurt people that matter a lot to me. We're going to come back to this at the end. Okay, guys, so this difficult story, chapter 21, it tells us, tells us that God's family is a family of faith. 22 picks up with just as much confusion and tension, but now the question that is answered is, who will this faith be in? Or where is this faith to be placed? That's what chapter 2 tells us. And you guys looked at this in your homework. You did, you know, you dug into this story. It's probably a familiar story to many of you. Um, but I, it's part of why I'm excited to talk about it this morning. Okay, chapter 12, beginning of the study, promise was made. Chapter 21, promise was kept. Chapter 22, in a surprising twist, the promise is threatened. See that? Chapter 21, a child is born. Chapter 22, a child's life is almost taken. Chapter 21, bad day for, Ish for Ishmael. <laughs> Chapter 22, really bad day for Isaac. Let's pick up 
first couple verses in 22. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with them and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. We're going to stop there. Okay. You should not power through this story. Do not power through a story like this. If you feel appalled, sit in it. That is what you are supposed to feel. How could God ask this of Abraham? Is he playing a mean trick? I mean, in what story would God make a people wait for decades for a child, for an offspring, and then demand that that child be offered as a sacrifice? Next question, how could Abraham go along with it? I mean, did you guys see this repeated phrase that Abraham rose early in the morning? We're supposed to be queued up when we read that, that Abraham is obeying right now, okay? How could Abraham go along with this? Maybe we could make sense of it because we could see, like, you know what? He just, like, flexed his faith muscle and sending away Ishmael. And so maybe that helped him step up for this even bigger leap of faith. But then we see in the text how Isaac is described, your son, your only son, whom you love. And we're again shaken. The faith that, would be, that was needed to send off Ishmael was quickly eclipsed by the faith that would be required for him to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. And additionally, guys, think about this. Sending away Ishmael would only make this all the harder because now there is no backup son, right? There's no son of Hagar to, to carry forth the promise if Isaac is gone. There's no son to spare. So how in the world does Genesis 3.15 come true? How does that happen how do we get a victory, a royal victory for the people of God if the victor is slaughtered? How is God's world going to be filled with God's people if the seed of the woman is tied up as a sacrifice? Isaac is the hope of Abraham, and therefore he is the hope of Israel, and therefore he is the hope of the whole world. How is God's story going to come to fruition as that hope of the world is carrying the wood and the ropes up? the hill that he would be sacrificed upon. Chapter 21 told us that we are a children of faith. Chapter 22 tells us what that faith is in. Faith in an atoning sacrifice. I'm going to read a little bit more. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, twice this time. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And they, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham is told to have faith, faith that God would provide the sacrifice, faith maybe that his son would be resurrected, Faith that God's promises would be true on the other side of obedience. 
But still, our natural response should be and is, how could God do this? How could he demand so much? But guys, when we use our good study habits, we remember, sit tight, get close to the text, remember the right perspective. In your homework, guys, you acknowledge that God already knew how Abraham would respond, right? God knows all things. So if God already knew that Abraham would pass this test, then the point of this exercise could not be for God to better understand Abraham. Therefore, the point of this must be that Abraham would understand God. That Abraham would understand and have his mind blown at the depth to which God would go to provide freedom for his people. Why would God do such a thing? How could God do such a thing? Ladies, it's not a rhetorical question. The answer is so that you and I could be children of the free woman. The point of this is so that Abraham and then Moses and the people that Moses is sharing this story with and you and me would understand that our faith must be in a sacrifice. And that sacrifice must be a substitutionary sacrifice and an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that covers our offenses so that we could be children of the free woman. So ladies, let's bring this down to our lives. Let's make sure that these tough stories can really get on the ground for us today. Your identity is that you are a child of the free woman, not of the slave woman. Ishmael is not your brother. Okay? Through Abraham and Isaac is your promise. So your brother is the son of promise. And not just the one who was promised, but the one who holds our promise. Your brother is the long-awaited son, not of Abraham, but of God himself. Your brother is the one who would take a journey to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem with his eyes set on the cross, carrying his own cross up this hill. He would be bound. And at that last minute, when the hammer was raised to drive the nails into his wrist, there was no rescue. There was no voice from heaven to stop this. Even though Jesus cried out, there was silence. There was no way out. So that you and I could have a way out. So that you and I could escape our punishment from hell. But also, ladies, so that you and I could escape the weight of the law. Okay? When we read that we are children of the free woman, it means that since we're saved by faith alone, we continue to live by faith alone, not by the law. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, so at the very least, we all agree freedom sounds good. The rest of the verses were like, oh, I hope she doesn't call on me. I don't really know what that means. But here's what we can grasp today, guys. We know that we want freedom. We know that living under the law can steal that freedom. So here's what I see, just real practical in my life. Cues or like symptoms that I have crawled back under the law rather than the freedom that was purchased for me by Christ. First one. 
if I am living in drudgery and boredom. Okay, so in general, if my walk with Christ, my life as a Christian woman feels pretty blah and, and full of drudgery, full of duty, maybe just going through the motions. If you kind of think, you know what, as long as I'm a good church woman, I have a little bit of church, a little bit of Bible, then God is pleased with me. You know, if someone asks you, what has God done in your life? And you're still sharing a story from five years ago then maybe this is you. I've been there before. I've just kind of accepted this new status quo as a Christian woman, even as like a church leader Christian woman. That idea of like blazing a trail of joy or worship, that looks impossible. Ladies, you and I might be living under the law if we see God as a boss that we're just trying to keep happy. You may not be living out your identity as a free woman, if life feels boring, that's the first, first one. Second one, when we live under the law, we deal with fear. When we are crawling back under the law, then we fear being found out. We fear that our law breaking has outweighed our law keeping I fear that you guys will find out the real me. You fear that I'm going to find out that you don't really hate your sin as much as you talk about it at church. We fear that our day of reckoning is coming. When we have a lot of fear, when we have paranoia, maybe even anxiety, when we tend to think like, no, I worked so hard to get to this point where I am a mature Christian woman. I know how hard I had to work to get this reputation. And so the thought of being found out and then losing that reputation would just be too much to bear. Ladies, you might be living under the law if you see God as like an auditor, someone who's always grading you, grading your every action. And lastly, we might be living under the law if we deal with a lot of condemnation. Okay, so if, we, if we're living like someone who is performing for God, then we are probably a slave to the law. Because that, that performance mindset, it, it's a heavy burden on our shoulders. And what happens, guys, and this is me so often, I shared a lot about this in the last six months. When I am allowing myself to live in this way, I am frozen in guilt. I am frozen and unable to move forward in whatever God has for me. So that voice that we hear of, you know what, you failed yesterday, you're going to fail again. You should probably give up on Jesus. You know, you didn't show faith yesterday, there's no way you're going to have faith for today. That is the voice of the law. Guys, that is heavy and that is exhausting. And I fear that so many of us sit there thinking that this is as good as it gets. We were called for freedom. We need to seize that freedom that was purchased for us. God is not our boss. He is not an auditor. We are not performing for him so that at the end of the day, he claps for us, guys. He is our rescuer, and he has rescued us, yes, from hell, but also from needing to keep the law, from needing to help him, from needing to perform for him or bring him our ideas. We are child, not of the law, but of the free woman. And if we can move forward toward freedom by faith, here's what happens. That drudgery, it gets eclipsed by joy. 
that fear, it gets covered up with peace and condemnation. It's muted out by the promises of God. In Galatians 4, Paul quotes Isaiah, and I loved it. And here's what I want to leave us with. These are the words of Isaiah in my own words. Ladies, it is better for you to be empty and need to be filled. To come to God barren like Sarah is better to be full and never come to God. So rejoice when you see no way forward. No way out other than God. Ladies, for what God will do in your lack is immeasurably more than you would ever do in your plenty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel and for our salvation. But Father, this morning I pray that that salvation that is ours, that we would continue to live it out. That today, that this hour, that you would show us where the unbelief is and that we would cast it away. Lord, pull it up and out of us and help us to cast it away, believing that our own strength will only make a mess. And then help us to delight in our freedom. Lord, help us to see where life is boring or heavy, or fearful, because we are not living into the fullness of the identity that you have given us. Father, would you separate us from everything, both faith and your promises, and then help us lift our eyes as we watch, as you have shown us our ultimate provision in Jesus, whom you loved, buying our freedom on a bloody cross. Amen.